Our scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 10. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent counselors to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search out the city to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When David, when they had told it to David, he sent to meet them, and for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Bethrohab and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers from the king of Mekah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army and the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, where the Arameans, the son of Zobah and, the, and of Rehob, the men of Tob and Mekah, were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in the front and in the rear, he selected all choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, he had arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong, he said. Let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God, that the Lord may do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans had fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the son of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And when Hadadezer sent and brought the, out the Arameans who were beyond the river, they came to Halem and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halem. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 20,000 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, their commander of their army, and he died there. When all of the kings and servants of Hadadezer had saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the, Is so the Arameans feared the sons of Ammon to help the sons of Ammon anymore. This is the word of the Lord. I'll give my disclaimer again. Uh, my foot is still not in a place to be able to stand the whole time. I don't know when it will be, but hopefully sooner than later. Um, so we read that, and you're thinking, okay, what does John do with that? <laughs> how, do we, how do I supposed to get something from there? There's so much there, but um, by God's good graces, let's uh, pray that he, that he would give us what he wants to from his word. There's a praise and worship song that has these words, every breath I take, what? Finish it. I 
taking you, right? Every breath I take, I take in you. you are my... Anyway, so uh, that's not my favorite song, but our kids really, we enjoy it, singing it. Um, those words do remind us of something, though, a great truth. We are the recipients of God's kindness and grace every moment of our lives. And we're slow to recognize that. We're slow to recognize his kindness and his grace uh, toward us. And we're also slow um, to, to thank him for withholding from us what is due us. I don't even think we think about that a lot of times. Romans 1.18 speaks of his righteous judgment against the ungodliness of men. And you and I deserve the full cup of God's wrath. And yet... For those that are his, Jesus takes the full cup of, of God's wrath and he drinks it dry so that there's none left for his people. That's good news. We're slow to think about that and consider it. God's judgments have not fallen on us and his kindness and grace he's lavishly and constantly given. Every breath we take, as well as every moment that he withholds his wrath, is his kindness. Oh, that we would learn to live every moment of our day with that in mind. Romans 2 speaks of men despising or presuming upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance. What is his forbearance? It means his patience to us. He's patient to us. It doesn't just strike us with, with what we deserve by God's grace. So far from being filled with thanks, we often presume upon his, presume upon his kindness and refuse to be moved by his grace too. And this way, by refusing to be moved by his goodness, we despise his kindness as well. In Romans 2, 4, Paul asks a question that I think we do well to ponder on. says this, Do we presume on or despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? The purpose of his kindness is to lead us to repentance. In the very next verse, verse 5, I don't have it quoted up here, but Paul tells us that if we despise or presume upon or fail to be moved by his covenant kindness and love and we harden our hearts, we're storing up wrath for ourselves when the righteous judgment of God approaches. We're storing up wrath by despising and not being moved by his kindness. God's kindness is there to draw us to himself and to remove from us every hindrance of that. Despising his kindness is spurring his covenant love and his faithfulness. It's building walls between us and God, and it causes our communion and union and our friendship with him to be at odds. As we've seen in chapters 8 and 9, um, David was a king who showed the kindness of God to the people of God. He showed the righteousness of God to the people of God. Today we're going to see that he's also a king that extends to the enemy God's kindness. The Lord longs for his enemies to be made friends. That's, a good, that's good news for you and I. Jesus longs to make his enemies his friends. David longs for his enemies to be made friends of God too. That they would know and walk in the covenant love and mercy of, of the Lord. And in that way, David is a good portrait of Jesus. And we'll see that today. Titus 3, 4 says this. In Jesus Christ, in him, the kindness and love of our Savior appears. So as we see Jesus, we see the kindness and we see the love of God. We see the hesed love, and I'm going to recap that word. That word is a Hebrew word that's very impregnated with meaning. Uh, the, the hesed love of God is, David showed the hesed love of God last chapter to Mephibosheth. Who was Mephibosheth? He was the 
son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. Okay, so he was in the old regime before David took over. He was of the enemy regime, although David never considered them an enemy. Uh, it seems like he should have to us. So this, this word hesed is a word that means the, the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness, the covenant love, the covenant mercy, the loyalty of, of God to his people. It has all that built in. And we've been talking about it for weeks. And in RUF, we talked about it a good bit this last semester. And uh, God reveals himself in Exodus 34 as the covenant, loving, merciful, faithful, loyal God. May we never tire of talking about the hesed of God. That's my prayer for me, and it's my prayer for us, too. So in this chapter, we're going to see that David extends the hesed love of God to an enemy nation. The extension of hesed by David as the Messiah King was the same, same in the last chapter. He, he extended the, God's covenant kindness to Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth was still an Israelite, right? He seemed to be like of the other regime, but he was an Israelite. Now in this chapter, he's going to extend it to an enemy nation that's been an enemy of, of Israelites for years and years and years. That's the extent that they're the same, chapter 8, chapter 9. In both the chapters, God through David extends his covenant faithfulness, his covenant love uh, to people. That's the extent of the, 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 now there's the great contrast. That's the extent of the same, what's the same. Now, what's the contrast? Well, Mephibosheth in the last chapter uh, he was, if you remember, there's two things we know about him. What was one of the things? He was what? In both feet. Crippled in both feet. He, hadn't, he couldn't really walk around, do much for himself. He had to have servants. He lived in a place called what? Remember it? You guys laughed at me, but he lived in a place called Lodabar. Like, it's, the bar is kind of low where he lived. You laugh at that, and yet the word itself means that there's no pasture there. There's no, there's no food there. There's no communication there. That's another word that it means. It's like, it's a bad place. There's nothing that he had to offer. But worse than that, worse than him being crippled in both feet and having nothing to offer, is he was of the old regime. He was of the enemy regime. Usually when a new regime took over, what happened? The old regime would be taken out. All of them would be taken out. But they could not rise up against the new regime. And, and, and we saw that, that David loved him and showed the, the kindness and the goodness of God, the hesed of God to Mephibosheth. It was a beautiful thing. And, and, and Mephibosheth receives it most humbly. And yet today we're going to see that the same covenant love and faithfulness is extended to an enemy nation, uh, giving them the opportunity to come and, and know the faithful love of, of God, the true God, and they reject it. Big difference. We're going to see that they despise it, they reject it, and they're going to suffer the consequences for it. So let me pray, then we'll look at chapter 10. Father, we thank you for the text that's before us. We thank you that as we preach, we preach from one section to another section. We don't have to wonder what's next because we want to preach through the counsel of your word. And yet when we preach through the whole counsel of your word, there's sections in here that are pretty tough, pretty hard. Uh, today is actually not one of the ones that's harder, but we're coming up on a whole bunch of them. So we pray for your grace and mercy, for your, your Holy Spirit to enlighten and us to understand your word, that it could transform us today as, uh, as you meant it to. Father, we thank you that your word says that all the things that were written before times and older times, they were written for our instruction and our benefit, that we could have hope and be transformed. So we pray that you would do that work today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're going to look at the outline, uh, or we're going to look at 2 Samuel 10 through this outline. The first thing is the, the, co the king's covenant, or the king's kindness despised by the enemy, verses 1 through 5. And then the hostility of the enemy, after they despise the covenant kindness, they're going to, they're going to uh, be hostile to the, God's people and God. 
And then they're going to be even more hostile. It's going to grow. That's the, the third thing. The hostility of the enemy grows. And then the last thing, the king's kindness receives. So despised, the king's kindness despised, the hostility of the enemy begins, the hostility of the enemy grows, and then the king's kindness is going to be received. So let's start with the first one. The king's kindness despised. The king of the Ammonites, Naash, has died. So their king has died. His son, Hanan, has succeeded him. So he's on the throne now. Although the Ammonites had had a very long history of hostility toward the people of God, at some point we read in the first verses, or we will read in the first verses, that the king Nahash had acted in kindness to David. We don't know exactly what kindness he did. We don't have that story. We don't know if David made a a covenant with him to say, I'll take care of your kids after you. We don't know if there was a formal covenant. But here's what we do know. We know that now David intended to act in hesed in God's covenant kindness toward the enemy king and the enemy king's son now that he was on the throne. Uh, An interesting note, and this is kind of uh, obvious, but I think we need to say it. When nations, um, they, they were very less, they were much less stable when there was a leadership transition. And here's a leadership transition of the Ammonites. It would have been the perfect time for David to invade one of their greatest enemies. And we would not be surprised to have heard and read that at this time, God said, go get them. And David would go get them. But what we see is something very different. Instead of attacking the Ammonites at their low point, God, through David, extends his grace and mercy to the enemy nation. Amazing. Pictures of Christ right there. Uh, So we are surprised that God, through David, extends his mercy and love, uh, an invitation to that, to the Ammonites. In chapter 9, David acted in hesed toward Mephibosheth. Now he acts in hesed toward his enemies. Um, And what lies behind this story and what lies behind every single story about God extending his care and love to the enemy is the promise, the great promise that, that God made to Abraham and through Abraham and through David makes to you and to me and all his people. Let me read a few verses of that. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. Genesis 22, 18. And through your offspring... By the way, it's singular, through Jesus that's coming after you, Abraham, and who will come after you? David. Uh, Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. And so these are wonderful promises of God, and God is continuing giving those promises and bringing those promises to pass through King David, who is a portrait of his greater son, Jesus, who's extending God's hesed and invitation to come to his loving kindness, even to us as enemies and the Ammonites as enemies. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Let's see how his greater son, Jesus, does that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, taking our curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, which we just read about, through Jesus might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise, promised spirit through faith. Are you guys Jews? Is there any Jews in here? Nope, Jewish background. We're all Gentiles, right? Our hope is here. Our hope is that through Jesus Christ, we get the promises of God. That's a beautiful truth. Um, David heard the promises of God back in chapter 7, and, uh, and here's how he responded to that. 
He's like, who am I to receive such good news? Who am I to receive the covenant promises of the faithful God? Who am I? Who is my family? It's just too good. I don't deserve this. And yet he was transformed by it. Mephibosheth, in the very next chapter, or two chapters later, verse chapter 9, he heard of the unexpected protection of David. He heard of that. I'm going to protect you. He's like, don't fear. And then he heard of the abundant provisions that David would lavish upon him. And he'd responded in the same way that David responded. He's like, and let me read it. I'll read that. 2 Samuel 9, verses 7 and 8. Here's the response of, of um, Mephibosheth to David uh, and, and God's loving kindness. And David said to him, Mephibosheth, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, um, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? We should have the same attitude that David had. Who am I? Who are we to receive your covenant promises and graces? We should have the same attitude as we receive the goodness and promises of God through Christ of, of Mephibosheth. Man, who am I to receive such goodness a, a dead dog like, like me. We should understand that. Uh, so Mephibosheth was given protection and provision, but he was given even more than that. He was given a place at the king's table. And the place that he was given at the king's table was not the place of a servant. It wasn't the place of a visitor. It was the place of a son, the place of a family. Uh, David would again now um, extend God's covenant kindness to the enemy nation, but this time it would be rejected by Hanan, and by the Ammonites. Let's take a look at the circumstances. We've mentioned some of them, but let me read the first three verses again of chapter 10. Now it happened afterward that the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nash, just as, the, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him about his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the commanders of the Ammonites said to their lord Hanan, do you think that David is simply honoring your father since he's sent you servants to console you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to explore the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Now remember, this will be a time that he might would have done that. You can see that. So the question was out there for Hanan. Would Hanan accept and receive the covenant kindness of God through David and through the servants of David that was extended to him? Or would he reject it, listening to all the voices around him? And you and I have kind of the same. This is an application. We probably won't recap this application. But you and I hear voices around us. It's like, why do you give yourself to the... Who cares about God and the king and all that? Live for yourself. We have voices around us telling us not to pursue the things of the Lord and not to listen to his kindness and his goodness and, and be enthralled and, and, and bank on that. So the question is out for us as well as it is with Hannon. Would, would he, would we receive the covenant kindness of the Lord? It, it seems almost foolish not to, Right? And yet we spurn it every day, just like King Hanan did in the Ammonites. Uh, it would have been the norm for the day for a king to accept the condolences of another king and the kindness of a king on the death of their dad. But however, Hanan rejects David's, um, David's kindness through the messengers, and he treats the messengers and the servants of David pretty badly. We're going to see them in verses 4 and 5. We can put that up there. Hanan and the Ammonites, they disgraced David's ambassadors. How did they do that? By shaving off half their beard. And I don't think it means they shaved off this half and left the mustache. I think it means they shaved it off this way and left like half of it that way. It's like, whoa, that's kind of crazy, right? If I did that, you, you guys probably wouldn't even be able to listen to me in a day. But like, man, that's crazy. What do you do that for, right? And then it says this, 
and they cut their robes off. And I'm going to use a different translation. This is one that you might have in, in your um, um, Bibles. It says, as far as their buttocks. And then he sent them away. And now we need to, know, we need to understand this. In, in those days, the longer the robes, what? The more the honor. And, and so if, if they uh, cut their robes off up toward their buttocks, that means like there's not an honor. They're in shame. All right? they, they have half a beard. The beards were pretty important back in those days as well. They need to come back to that, right? Kevin? I'm kidding. There we go. So uh, get a beard. So um, Hanan and the, and the Ammonites disgraced David's ambassadors, and, and they, they left in, I think, jeers of the Ammonite crowds were shouting at them and like, look at those guys. And my guess is that as David's, uh, as David's ambassadors, they were pretty shamed. They probably took the, the road less traveled, right? They probably didn't take the main highway where everybody would be. They probably like went in the, in the back. David hears of the news, it says in the text, and he was very gracious to, to his ambassadors. Even though the Ammonites were not gracious at all and they despised them, David was very kind to his ambassadors. Um, and, and, um, and what he said to them is like, I'm going to give you some time off, right? Or at least I'm going to let you work remotely you know, for like months until your beards grow back, until we can get you some new clothes, right? He was very gracious and, and kind to, um, to his to his ambassadors, to his servants. Have you ever had like a really bad hair day and stayed home and not come to church, right? Um, I see some people saying no, and I see other people like smirking like, maybe. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we get shamed into that as well. Hanan and the Ammonites despise the kindness of the king, and that really stirs all that happens in the rest of the chapter, that they spurred and they spurned and they despise the goodness and the kindness of the king, which I think that you and I do, or I do, all the time. Uh, what do you guys do with the servants who are sent by God to you to bring the good news of the gospel? I don't want to dwell on it too much, but it's worth, worth consideration. Do we despise those who bring good news? I have sometimes. I've listened to somebody, I'm like, I can't listen to them. I know, they're, I know something about their life, right? Um, let me read 2 Chronicles 36, 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his word and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Whew. That's really hard, and that's really tough. Um, so give me one second here. There we go. We're good. I want, I want us to have this in mind. I want us to have a contrast. We've already talked about this contrast, but I want us to get it in our mind. The contrast of how Mephibosheth humbly received the goodness and the kindness of God's covenant love and faithfulness, and how on the other side that we're going to see how the Ammonites, we're starting to see it, how they reject it and they despise it. And we're going to see that Romans 2, 5 is true of them, that they're heaping up and they're, they're uh, putting, piling up the condemnation of God on themselves by despising his ki kindness. So disgracing David's ambassador such was a picture of despising God's covenant kindness, but it goes deeper. So let's look at the storyline, consider it, um, what's going on in the actual text, and then we'll pull back and we'll see how does this story function in the bigger picture of things. So the covenant kindness of God is despised. David's ambassadors are rejected. They're humiliated. They're sent away. The kindness of David is extended to his own servants uh, work from home till you get some new clothes and, and your beards grow in. And now the hostility of the enemy intensifies. Uh, first, we presume upon his kindness. We don't accept his kindness. And then all of a sudden, we start building walls up between us and the Lord. Here, the hostility of the enemy begins, verses 6 through 14. 
It seems in the text that David didn't retaliate against the actions uh, to his, against his servants, which is amazing. Uh, he was slow to anger, it seems. That's another characteristic of the king who would finally come and sit on the throne of David Jesus. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, waiting for us to move toward him and to accept his covenant graces and love. But the, but the covenant kindness of the king, nor the slowness of his anger, would curb the hostility of the enemy in this story. Uh, that's what we'll see, and that's the way it is often with the wicked. They keep heaping condemnation on themselves, even though God extends and invites them to come they reject him still, even his own people do. So verse 6, we'll start seeing uh, this a little bit. The Ammonites see that their uh, rejection of David, um, it, it stirs something in David. David starts seeing them as they are. They're the enemy. And they feel like, okay, David sees us as the enemy. Well, they just made themselves out to be the enemy. But they're still frustrated, and they work themselves up into great hostility. They gather their own troops, the Ammonites do. And they also hire the Armenes, Aramenes. Now, the Aramenes, does, do you have, does anybody have the Syrians in your Bible? Does anybody have a Bible open that says the Syrians? You do, and you do, you do. Okay, so the Aramenes and the, and the Syrians are the same people. So if I say the Syrians or the Aramenes, I, I tend to go back and forth between them. Just remember they're both. The Syrians are the Aramenes. The Aramenes are the Syrians. Yeah, there you go. So David hears uh, that, the, hears of it. They hear, he hears that the Ammonites, I didn't finish the other part, did I? I'll tell you that. He hears that the Ammonites are, are hostile and going up and, and gathering their troops against them. And he hears that the Ammonites have actually gone and hired the Aramines or the Syrians army. Like, we're going to pay you to fight with us against David. We want to destroy David. They want to take David out. They want to take the people of God out. So David hears of it, and he sends his commander of the armies. Do you remember who that is? Joab. And Joab, has he been like this real faithful, awesome guy? It, he's fought really well. He's, he's honored the king a lot, but he's also had a lot of pretty bad stuff that we've read about. We won't go into all that, but just kind of put that in your mind. And so he sends Joab and all the armies to defend, to defend Israel because the Ammonites are coming against them and they're hiring outside people to come against them. So David uh, understood uh, that the Ammonites were against him. And although, and this is amazing to me, David extends the covenant kindness of God to them. He's not going after them. He's extending the covenant kindnesses of God to them, and yet they're the ones that reject, and they're the ones that turn against David and uh, make war against him. Ah, uh, it sounds pretty familiar. They, in their rejection, they hardened their hearts, and they despised so much so uh, that they battle against him. Let me read verses 9 and 10. Now, now when jo Joab saw the battle was set against him at the front and at the rear, Joab selected warriors from all the choice men in Israel. He lined them up against the Arameans, but the remainder of the people he placed under the command of his brother Abishai, and he lined them up against the sons of Ammon. The Ammonites rejected the covenant kindness of the Lord. They shamed the messengers of David. Uh, they sent them away in shame and despised his kindness. Their hostility builds up, and they stir one another up with wrong words. Uh, and they hire the Arameans to fight against the Lord and against his people. And now we have the Ammonites along with the Syrians, it says, lining up or, or setting up against the Lord and is, is anointed. Now there's a battle strategy that Joab has. It doesn't tell us a lot about his strategy, but it's important. 
uh, and it's a good plan. He says, I will take these men, and I will go up against the Syrians. And you, my brother Abishai, you take these men, and you go up against the Ammonites. So I'll take these men, I'll go up against these Ammonites, or yeah, I'll go up against uh, these Syrians, and you, my brother Abishai, you go up against the Ammonites. The strategy continues in verse 11, and he says, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall come and help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and I will help you. There's a beautiful picture there. I think that we do really well to look at that. It's like we, we're, we're made to support one another, to come alongside one another. And if you need a hand in fighting the enemy because he's coming hard after you, and it seems like he's too strong for you, then I need to come and I will come by your side or we will come by your side. And, and if, you, if I'm battling an enemy and he's coming at me hard and he's too, too strong for me, then we're called to come to my side and have my back. That's the one anothering that Scripture has and living hope is a call for you and I. It's not just some, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. It's actually what we're supposed to do, right? When a brother or sister is stumbling and they can't handle the enemy and the enemy is too strong, then God calls the rest of the troops to come alongside them and have their back and vice versa. It's a, a beautiful thing. Um, and it's a calling. We're called to go into the messiness of people's lives. The closer that you get with people, the messier it is because we're all sinners. And yet the beauty of that is if we're in Christ, Christ through his death and his burial and his friendship with us, he not only exemplifies what we're to do, it's our relationship with him that makes it okay for us to go into the messiness, right? Because he's the one that redeems us from messiness. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, in Christ, we've been equipped to go in instead of running away from such mess. And as pastor of the church and an elder of the church, seeing the messiness of our body and seeing the messiness of myself, there's so many beautiful pictures of redemption and restoration. It's amazing. And I've seen it multiple times in these past months. Uh, what's the result of the battle? Uh, verses 13 and 14. So Joab and the people who were with him advanced to the battle against the Arameans, and, and the Arameans fled from Joab and the people that were with him, the troops, the choice men. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans had fled, they also fled from Abishai, and they entered the city. And the city, almost every commentator says, was their capital city. They, went, they, they retreated, and they were there. And then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon, and he came to Jerusalem. So Joab returns home. So you feel like, no, it's, it's over. Well, no, not so quickly. The hostility of the enemy is pretty strong against the Lord and his people, and it only, gets, uh, it only grows. The hostility only grows. So that's verses 15 through 18. The hostility of the enemy grows. Verses 15 and 16. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they assembled together and hadded Ezer sent word and brought out all the Arameans. He's like, okay, they hired this many. They beat us. We're humiliated. So had had Ezer, who was the, the king of the Arameans or the Syrians, he's like, okay, let's get more people and we're going to go against them again. Um, and I think what we're going to see is that Romans 2, 5 is true. As the, the Arameans hardened their heart against God and his people, they're like, no, we're going to go against them again. They didn't make peace. They were like, they're hardened their hearts, and they're like, we're going after them. They're, they're storing up wrath. 
God's wrath for them. And we're going to see that play out. God's wrath will come down on them very hard next. Let's read verses 17 through 18. Now when it was reported to David that the Arameans were gathering the troops again, he gathered all of Israel together. Now, that's more than before, basically. What we're saying, he gathered all of Israel together, crossed the Jordan, came to Helam, and, uh, and the Arameans lined up against David, and he fought them, but the Arameans fled from Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen, and he struck Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. Does it sound like that they were storing up God's wrath? I mean, look at that. It's like, uh, who, how many were destroyed? 700 charioteer, charioteers, 40,000 horsemen, and their commander, Shobach. Uh, died there. Man, we might recall at this point the promises that God made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6 and verse 14. It says the same thing. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. If you would turn, you could either turn your eyes to the screen or turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 30. Let me read that section of scripture and make some connections here. And when they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, and he's quoting Psalm chapter 2 here. We've gone to that several times these past weeks. Um, if, I won't take the time to make full connection, but this is Psalm chapter 2. He says, why were the nations insolent? Or why do the nations rage? your version may say. And why do the people's plot in vain? Why do, they, why do the kings of earth take their stand and the rulers gather themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ? Now, there's a beauty here. I'm going to take a minute to talk about it. In Psalm chapter 2, uh, it says that why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings of earth take their stand and the rulers come against the Lord and his anointed? Well, when it quotes it in the New Testament, it changes it to Christ, right? So what we see is that Christ is the Lord's anointed. He is the Holy One, and we see that beautifully in the text itself. Uh, for truly, this is verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all of Israel. So everybody, all those that were against the Lord, gathered together against him to do what? Uh, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, look at their th threats and grant it to your bondservants to speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what, what we have here is the Lord applying Psalm 2 to, that, that Psalm 2 to Herod and to Pilate. They've gathered themselves against the Lord Jesus and his anointed, and this is exactly what's happened to the leaders in this text. Hadadazer and Hanan gathered themselves together to take a stand against the Lord and against his anointed David, and they lost. Just like it is here in Acts chapter 2, they lost. Any that come against the Lord will lose. The Davidic king will always rule. Now, I, I think that's an important application. It says in, in the text that we have, only what God's hand had purposed to occur would occur. Only what he, what he intended would occur. The enemies gather themselves together, they call other nations, and the only thing they can do is to do what the Lord has intended to occur. Can you imagine if they were able to do what the Lord hadn't intended to occur, what our lives would be like? 
But it says in this text, and we get it in our story, that they can only do what the Lord has planned and purposed and predestined to occur. Even the evil in their hearts is still predestined by God in a certain way to do his work. If that weren't true, we have nothing to stand on. We're, we're, we're like standing on like, what will God do? Is he going to keep his promises? Well, he can, but it, they can be thwarted by other men who are raised up against the Lord. But they can't, they can't stop God's promises from coming. That's the good news that you and I have. If, ask yourself these two questions. What if we lived as if what God wanted to occur didn't always occur? We, we live that way a lot of times. And what if we would live all of our life understanding that what God promises will come to pass? Always. There's a, a huge difference in how we would live. There's a lot of application there. If we didn't have these truths that only what God determines and plans will come about, then, man, we're struggling. And I understand the hardness of understanding all that. I get that. Uh, but we have the assurance. That's why we can wake up the next morning. That's why we can go through the messiness. That's why we can do the things that we do that are hard. Uh, that's why we can re- repent and we're forgiven. All right, the, the last thing is the king's kindness. So we had first the king's kindness spurned, presumed upon, and then we have the hostility of the enemy, the hostility of the enemy even at a greater degree. And now we're going to have the king's kindness received, verse 19. When all the king's, servant, when all the king's servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel, and they served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. So Hadad-Ezer, the leader of the Syrians, of the uh, Arameans, and his servants, they came to their census. They made peace with David. Now they warred with him. They lost a lot. But in that battle, they were still saved. The ones that were left, they came to their senses, and they became servants of David, and they made peace with him. And I think that we could rightly conclude that David showed those who made peace with him the covenant kindness of God. He would extend it to them. So what grace he, he gave to those who came to their senses, right? Even though they were battled, that's amazing truth. Isaiah chapter 60, I mentioned this last week. I, I don't know if any of you went and read it. Uh, I would almost want to ask, but I won't. I would urge you guys to read it um, this week. The whole chapter is about how God extends his covenant kindness and grace beyond the nation of Israel to all the nations, not just in the New Testament. It was there for them in the Old Testament as well. But let me read verse 12. For the nation or the kingdom which will not serve you, Jerusalem, shall perish. The ones who don't serve God will perish eventually, and the nations that refuse to serve you will be utterly ruined. Now, the good news is, is the nations that are God's enemies that turn to him, they will receive the full hesed, right? The full place at the table as a son, not as a slave. Deuteronomy 8.20 like the nations which the Lord caused, causes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not listen to, obey, listen to and obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this is hitting home. This is saying, hey, it's not just the ones that are out there that uh, don't follow the Lord that he's going to reject. It's the ones that are in here. Like the people that hear God's word all the time, if we reject it, we'll also be rejected by him. But the ones who do come to the brightness of his rising. That's a verse that's in the early part of Isaiah 60. He's saying, Jews, I want you to to be a light to the nations and all the kings will come to the brightness of your rising. As they understand the truth of God's covenant, 
Uh, Romans chapter 11 says, if, we, if the enemy understands, if we understand while we're yet a sinner of God's covenant mercy and grace and we come to that, even though we're not Jews, God will graft us into his family. Let me read. It's a little bit extended. I don't have time to explain all of it, but let's read it. And we're almost finished, by the way. Stick with me. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough, refer, uh, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, are grafted in among them, uh, among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith or your belief. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Now what's that saying? It's saying a lot. But what it's saying is this, is that through Christ he goes into the enemy nations. He goes into the nations that were not his, to, to the Gentiles, to you and to I, not, not the Jews. And he extends his covenant mercy and grace and his covenant invitation that we would come. And, and, and what it says here, it's like he's, he's made room in that olive tree for us to be grafted in it's, it's hard, but part of the way he's made room is by breaking off all the Jews who didn't believe in him and didn't obey and didn't trust. And by God's good graces, um, we've been grafted in at a place of their unbelief we believe. But then the text would say, but if we don't believe, we're not going to remain on that tree. Now, we don't keep ourselves in Christ, but if you're truly his, then, then we won't think that we're supporting Christ. We'll think that he's supporting us. In other words, the root supports the branches. The branches don't support the root. Some of the things that are there, but the good news for you and I is that he's made a way through Jesus for you and I to be grafted into that olive tree, to be a part of his family, to have a place at his table, not as a slave, not as a servant, but as a son and daughter of the king. A few thoughts, uh, a, a couple of things, and then, I, then we'll go back to one verse that I skipped over. Does anybody know I skipped over a verse? You do? That's amazing. You really do? Man, go Kevin. Um, huh? Hmm. Because you're doing slides? <laughs> okay. He's doing slides, and so he recognizes we skipped over reverse. We did it intentionally. Here's a few thoughts. We're left with the same question that, that Hannon was left with. Are we going to receive the covenant kindness, love, faithfulness, loyalty of the king? It makes no sense not to. And yet, so often we spurn it and we despise it day after day. It, it's almost unthinkable, right? And yet we do it. Uh, are you going to freely accept and live based on his covenant hesed as he's offered in the gospel? If you're here today and you haven't depended on God's covenant, love, faithfulness, loyalty, you've tried to make a way yourself and you've not uh, depended on what he's freely offered in the gospel through you, I, I pray today that you would like give up and say, man, I don't want to reject it and spurn it any longer. That's really good stuff. He's offering it to me, broken, sinner, man. 
Uh, the second one is, for us, if you're in Christ even, don't despise his hesed. Don't despise the Lord's kindness and goodness. Make it a part of your meditation day and night. Stir one another up with the truths of it. Uh, rest in it. Rest in the forgiveness that it brings. I, I was reminded in thinking about God's hesed that what wondrous love is this, oh my soul. You know, um, so uh, the other truth that we see in the story is if we despise the Lord's hesed, if we despise his kindness and goodness, then it brings more intimate, uh, uh, enmity between us and the Lord, raises things up against us. Now, we stopped. Here's, here's what we didn't get. What verse is it? Anybody know? Verse 12. We didn't really hit that too much. Just hit a little bit of it. So let's pick that back up and we'll fin- finish our time together. So Hannon's despising of the king's kindness was the biggest problem in the whole chapter, the despising of, of God's kindness and goodness. It stirred up everything that happened in the chapter. But the heart of the chapter and what brings calm to the chapter and rest to the chapter uh, that's been stirred up is words we skipped over in verse 12. Now, the words that we are going to read in verse 12 are actually said by Joab. And you're, if you know Joab, you're like, he can't say anything of wisdom, but he can. And God uses him, and he does. And I want to just use a very good application here that we're going to see beautiful pictures from the, from, from the mouth of Joab. And you don't listen to God's truth because the pastor is perfect. You listen to God's truth because it's perfect. And we have to be really careful with that. And there's, there's, I've already mentioned this. There's so many times, like, I can't listen to the truth from that person because I know his life. Well, whether in pretense or in truth, the truth is good. If you're waiting to hear the truth from somebody who's perfect, just only can, you know, read the Bible, don't listen to anybody talk about it. <laughs> but so these words are spoken by, by Joab, and we wouldn't expect such words of wisdom, but we have them here. So let's pick up Joab's words. We'll, we'll go to verse 11 where he starts his words. We've hit a little bit of this part, but we hadn't hit verse 12. So verse 11 and 12. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. But be of good courage and, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So three things in his two verses. First of all, it's just a reminder of what we've already said. If you need help and the enemy's too strong and he's bearing down on you and you can't handle it, I'll come to you. And if the enemy is bearing down on me and I can't handle it, you come to me. Bear up your brother and your sister's struggles. The next thing is this. It says, um, verse, the second point is like, be of good cheer, be of good cheer, be of good courage. For why? For the people and for our land. The Lord is using Joab here to bring about his covenant promises of righteousness and justice and peace. Like, I'm going to protect the people and I'm going to protect the land and I'm going to give them peace. And then the third thing is the thing that we hadn't hit at all. It's like, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab at this point, he knows that the enemy has gathered more troops, not just the ones they had they defeated the first time. He doesn't know if they're going to win the battle. He has no idea. His confidence, his planning uh, didn't come and the outcome didn't come because he knew the outcome of the battle. He didn't know the outcome of the battle. At that moment, he didn't know. Joab's confidence and courage came in knowing that the Lord would do what? What is good in his own sight. He's like, I know you will do good. I know the righteousness of my God. And I take courage in that. That is the Lord himself ruling in righteousness, doing what is right. And we can take confidence that he does what is right. And, and you and I, do we know every outcome of our day and situations and circumstances? Not at all, right? 
We don't know the outcome. And the truth is that, that we don't have our hope because we know the outcome. We know the ultimate outcome. That's a beautiful thing. But we have our hope because we know that God is God and he does what is right. He does what is good. Always. And the, the actual literal trans- translation in Hebrew, if you didn't try to make it read well, it just says this, God is good and he will do the good in his eyes. He will do the good in his eyes. And if we can trust that he will do the good in his eyes, we don't have to know the outcome. We know our Savior. And we know that he'll always do right. He'll always do the good in, in, um, in his eyes. Because he will do the good in his eyes, then we should always turn our eyes to him. And we're going to sing that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus Now. Would you stand?